We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. And the title of this morning's sermon is The Perfect Storm. The Perfect Storm. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And when you've arrived there, if you'll stand as we read God's word together, I'll give you a second to get there. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Here's what Paul records. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You may be seated. So we're continuing on uh, in our series through the book of Galatians. We began it last week and we've entitled this entire series, Getting Back to Grace. Getting Back to grace, because at the heart of what Paul is doing in this letter to the churches in Galatia is he is calling them to come back to grace. And so this is our second sermon in this series. And if you have missed any of them or you know you're going to have to miss them, uh, we're trying diligently to keep them updated on our website. But you can also listen to them on Newbury Church's podcast uh, so you can track with them there. We try to have them up by Monday after the sermon is done. So if you missed the first one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because what you'll see is that this letter is very unique and that a lot of what we'll talk about will continuously build off of what we've already talked about. But again, this sermon is titled The Perfect Storm. You know, in October of 1991... We experienced what meteorologist Robert Case dubbed the perfect storm. You may be familiar with the movie starring George Clooney uh, entitled The Perfect Storm. It wasn't a fiction, fictional tale. It was based off of the perfect storm that we experienced in 1991. It was real and it was deadly. It happened off the coast of New England and it resulted in both destruction of property and the loss of life. You see, and what made this storm the perfect storm was that conditions were just right for everything to go catastrophically wrong. See, here's what happened in that perfect storm back in October of 1991. There were three factors, there were three different storms that all contributed to make this one storm the perfect storm. See, first, and this was common... Cold air from Canada was oozing south and it combined with the cold front that was arriving from the west to move through the northern tiers of the United States. So that's common. There's cold air that comes down from Canada. 
But in addition to that, there was a high pressure system that was building over southeast Canada. Again, that was not a totally unknown experience because it is known that land loses its summer heat faster than the ocean waters, which create ideal conditions for the development of high pressure over open water. So again, two storms, common, it happens, but here was the third part, and it was the wild card. There was Hurricane Grace. And this was a large tropical system that originated near Bermuda, and it had gained hurricane force by October 27, 1991. It was already causing swells 15 feet off North Carolina's shores. And Grace would eventually achieve the status of a Category 2 hurricane, but it was headed in a northwestern direction. And what happened was all three of these weather systems collided together and formed what Robert Case dubbed the perfect storm. You have to understand how devastating this was. Waves reached the height of four stories. That's 50 feet waves that were crashing down. It claimed the lives of anything non-aquatic that existed in the ocean. But it also created these stalled cold fronts in the Midwest that produced blizzard conditions in eastern Minnesota, dumping 28 inches of snow on the Twin Cities and a record 37 inches in Duluth, and with temperatures a little bit warmer in southern Minnesota, it became a major ice storm there that stopped traffic and shut down public transportation. Now, my wife's from Minnesota, and one of the things that I learned is it takes a lot to shut Minnesota down in the winter, but this storm did it. Even though the worst of the storm stayed offshore, it was estimated to have caused over a billion dollars in damages with homes being destroyed from Maine all the way down to the Carolinas. And I tell you all of this to paint a picture for you of what it looks like when the conditions are just right for everything to go catastrophically wrong. But what I want you to see this morning is that the churches of Galatia were experiencing their own perfect storm. Not as three physical storms collided, but rather as three spiritual storms raged that if not prepared for and not stopped, they would collide and lead to catastrophic loss, not of body, but of soul. These three storms, if not prepared for and not stopped, would lead to apostasy. Now, what do I mean when I say apostasy? What does that word mean? Well, apostasy, in its most basic form, is, is, is when we talk about apostasy, we're talking about drifting away from the faith. We're talking about whether slow or whether fast, those who have claimed faith, but have begun to turn from the truth of God to falsehood. That's apostasy. And so someone who has turned from truth to falsehoods, we would call them an apostate. They have abandoned the faith. They have walked away. They have proven themselves to be one who does not believe the truth of Scripture. And so in the context of the churches in Galatia, their apostasy was that they were turning away from grace. 
And again, the reason I want to draw your attention to this perfect storm in the book of Galatians is because I believe, listen, as we walk through this, we will see that each of the three areas that led to the perfect storm in Galatia are potential storms on our horizon every day. And if we are not careful, and if we do not check them, we too can be led into apostasy. So I have four points for you this morning. The latter three are just going to be the three parts of the storm that were colliding in Galatia to create this perfect storm. But, but there's a point that I want to say before that, and here it is this morning, what we see from our text. We have to remember that everyone has to be on guard. Everyone has to be on guard. Look at what Paul writes there in verse 6 when he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So Paul begins as he deals with this perfect storm that they're facing and he says, listen, I am amazed and I am astonished that this is happening to you. He wants to express to them his utter shock that they are abandoning grace, that they are turning away from grace and that they are pursuing falsehoods, but it's almost as if when he makes that statement that he expects them, and I would say rightly so, more than anyone else to be faithful. He expects them more than anyone else to be faithful, and, and he's right to demand that. Because remember the history of the churches in Galatia. We talked about this some last week. These were churches that were introduced to Jesus by Paul himself. On Paul's first missionary journey, he traveled through this southern province of Galatia and established churches in the cities that were there. And he helped, he helped by the grace of God to build them up. And so he was the one who taught them the gospel. He was the one who shepherded them into what a church should look like. He bled for these churches. He wept over these churches. And all of it to point them to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And so Paul expects them more than anyone else to remain faithful. One commentator notes this. He said the Galatians had been privileged to be taught by the greatest teacher that the church has ever known and will ever know apart from Jesus Christ. They were taught by Paul. But he goes on and says, yet they readily rejected the truths of grace that they had learned from him. But the scarier thing in the church of Galatia, right, is that it was happening quickly. They were falling fast. Because look at what Paul says. He says, I am amazed that you were so quickly. Another way of translating that word would be easily. So he's saying, I am amazed that you were so quickly and so easily abandoning the grace of God. And so what do we make of this? This should be a warning to us. That there is no one who is above the temptation to turn away. I want you to hear me say that, brothers and sisters in the faith. There is not a one of us who are so secure that we will not be tempted and could not possibly give in to turning away from the faith. Every one of us has to be on guard that we are not led astray to believe something other than the gospel. See, we've got to get away from this notion that this could never happen to us. You know, a few months back, I guess it was longer than that, over a year ago, 
um, we had Dr. Jarvis Williams come and preach, and he preached from one of the Psalms. And, and uh, full disclosure, I don't even remember what Psalm he preached on. Uh, couldn't tell. I tried to go back through my notes, and I don't even remember where I took notes for it. I did take notes on it. Okay, I took notes. Couldn't remember what Psalm he preached on, but there was something that he said that I think that will stick with me to the day that I die. Isn't it great how God does that sometimes? We might not remember the sermon or the place, but there are nuggets of truth that get implanted into our hearts and minds that we will never let go of. And he said something. He said that every one of us, it is right for us to daily pray that God would not let us fall away. Man, and that rocked me because I don't think I'd ever prayed that before. God, keep me. Don't let me fall away. You see, the only way that it becomes difficult for us to be led astray is when we begin to acknowledge the reality that we can be led astray. You know, Scripture is clear on this in so many places. Scripture warns us to guard ourselves against this. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul writes, So whoever thinks he stands, he must be careful not to fall. In other words, those who think they are strong and who think that there is no way that they could ever fall, those are likely to be the ones who will. Because the moment that you start relying on your own strength, you are doing the very thing that the church in Galatia did. You're turning from grace. You're turning from grace. And I want all of us in this room, if nothing else, to walk out of the door with a sober understanding that we too can be tempted to fall away. You know, not all of my job as a pastor is just standing up here and preaching to you. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. But that's not all that I do. And one of the things that is required of me as a pastor is often I have to step into hard situations that people are going through. I step into sin. I step into messy moments, into messy marriages, into messy relationships, into messy sin. And I have unfortunately sat with many couples, more than I care to count, whose marriages were just falling apart. Whose just, were just falling apart. I've had to do that. I've sat in living rooms with other pastors and their wives whose marriages were just falling apart. And one of the things that is so interesting to me is of every person who I've sat with and whose marriages have seemed to have been falling apart, almost without fail, they look at me and they say, we never thought that this could happen to us. But I have noticed that some of the strongest marriages are when husbands and wives have a very keen understanding that if it is not but for the grace of God, they too will fall away from their spouse. That they too could fall into that same temptation. But when we let our guard down and we start to believe this could never happen to us, those are the ones who typically are sitting in our living room and we're fighting to salvage something that's very, very broken. And so we've got to come to a place where we understand that there is a real temptation for each and every one of us to fall away. But scripture warns us in other places. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy, pay close attention to your life and your doctrine. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. He's saying, watch your life and watch the teaching that you hold to. Be careful. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking for anyone he can devour. We have to understand that there is a need for us to be on guard, lest we find ourselves in the same place as the churches in Galatia.
straying from grace and straying from Christ. And what Paul wants to make clear is, that, is what their apostasy is actually doing because he says they are turning away from him who called them by the grace of Christ. So Paul wants them to understand that this is not a mere theological debate. This is not a gray area. This is them turning away from Christ because they are turning away from grace. And we will see this more in a moment, but the false teaching that they were buying into was leading them away from grace and you don't get Christ without grace. They are abandoning the one they say they love. But before we move on to talk a little bit more about the perfect storm, there's one final thing that I want to note on this point. Though this church is in the midst of the perfect storm, Paul refuses to allow them to blame the storm because he says, you are turning away. Another way of translating that phrase, turning away, is deserting. He's saying, you are deserting. You are turning away. John MacArthur in his commentary notes this, and it's really helpful. He says, the Greek verb is reflexive, indicating that the act that they are committing is voluntary. The believers, who are, the believers were not passively being removed, as the King James translation would suggest, but they were in the process of removing themselves from the sphere of grace. They were responsible. Paul won't let them blame the circumstances in their life. He won't let them blame the storms in their life. They can't blame it on anything other than themselves because they are responsible to fight for their holiness. So as we move kind of into what this perfect storm entailed, let me caution you that if you find yourself in the perfect storm, I want to, to caution you just like Paul tells them, we can't blame the storm for our falling away because the Lord has given us and equipped us with means to fight. And so my aim as we work through this is that not only will we observe what was going on, we see the conditions that everything was right for it to go catastrophically wrong, but we start to observe where these same storms may be in our own life, but we also start to engage with ways in which we can battle against these storms. So like the storm we talked about in the beginning, there are three parts to this perfect storm that's going on in the churches in Galatia. And here's the first part of the perfect storm. The churches were facing real hardship. The churches were facing real hardship. Look at what Paul says there in the beginning of verse 7. He says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you. There are some who are troubling you. See, the church was facing hardships from those outside of their religious circles, but also those who were within the religious circles. And in this direct context, verse 7 is speaking of those within who are troubling them. But we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want to focus on some of the hardships that they were facing from outside. We cannot neglect the fact that these believers living in the first century were living during a time where they would have been heavily persecuted for their faith. Being a Christian in the first century was nothing like being a Christian in America. Nothing. We think that we face persecution because somebody makes fun of us because of what we believe. You remember what we talked about last week, what happened to Paul when he was establishing these churches? 
He was stoned to the point that they thought that they had killed him, so they left him on the side of the road, but he wasn't dead. That was the persecution that the church was facing. That's how much they vehemently hated this Christian church that was being built up. They were facing real persecution. It was not easy to be a Christian during this time. So they were facing hardship at every turn, persecution at every turn, and suffering at every turn. But I want to be clear, and my point might have been a little bit misleading, that's not actually the storm. The storm isn't the suffering. The storm isn't really the hardship. That's just the Christian life. God has never been shy about the fact that if we are going to follow him, we must be ready for the hardships that come. Hebrews 13, verses 12 through 13, it says, Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. James 1 says, count it all joy when, not if, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. John 16, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. We talked about this some last week, that Jesus was never shy about what it would look like to follow him. So much so, as we mentioned, he told people to stop and count the costs. One of the problems in our day and age is people love this easy believism. If you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. If you come to Jesus, all your struggles with sin will go away. If you come to Jesus, your marriage will be perfect. Your kids will somehow become great. Your job will just be perfect. You will have everything you want. The only problem is Jesus said none of that. But he guaranteed that if you follow me, it demands that you take up your cross and follow me. It is not easy. Jesus was clear about that. So that the storm, right, as I mentioned, it wasn't necessarily that they were facing hardship. Again, that's called the Christian life. And this is a sermon for another day, but let me just mention it real quick. If you are not facing persecution and hardship in your life now because of your faith, you're doing the Christian life wrong. Because Jesus guaranteed it would come when we are faithful. Guaranteed it beyond a shadow of a doubt. But so the storm, right, it's not necessarily that they're facing hardship. Here's where the storm comes in. The storm comes in that they're facing hardship, but they think they shouldn't be. That's where the storm comes in, right? Because the moment that we start believing that we do not deserve or we should not go through hardship, especially because we are Christians, that's the moment we will start to question whether grace is enough. When we go through hardship and we think we don't deserve it, or we think that because we are Christian, God is, God is obligated to remove that hardship from our lives. That's just not the case. But this is what the church was going through. They were disappointed in what their faith had led them to. They thought that, man, there's something just not right about this. It can't be this hard. This can't be all there is. And so they began to turn away from grace. 
Now let me mention this to you. How do we combat the temptation to look at hardship and think that we shouldn't go through it? Well, I would offer two things. I think that we need to have a deeper biblical understanding of suffering. And I think we need a better understanding of the gospel. Because when we have a deeper theological understanding of suffering, we will see something that is so contrary to the world. And it can be scary, but it's beautiful. One of the things that we'll start to see is that persecution, hardship, suffering, pain in this life is not always a burden. At times, it's a blessing to us. Take James 1, for example, and you've heard me say this before. Count it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and let perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Here's the question. Can you make yourself perfect? Can you make yourself complete? Can you make yourself lack nothing? No, okay, good, so we've established that. How many of you want to be perfect? How many of you want to be complete? How many of you want to lack nothing? The way that God does that in your life is through pain and through suffering, and it is something that only God can do. So the moment that we think we shouldn't go through hardship, we are saying that we don't really want to be perfect, we don't really want to be complete, and we don't really want to lack nothing because the means by which God has brought about to develop those things in us is through the fiery trial. It's a blessing. It's hard, but it's a blessing. That passage in Hebrews where it says, listen, Jesus suffered outside of the camp to redeem us by his blood. And it says, therefore, therefore, go to him, go outside of the camp and share his disgrace. Here's my other question to you. How many of you want to be near Jesus? I do. Jesus isn't found in the comfortable city. Jesus is found outside where the trash was burned and where the garbage was thrown out, bearing the disgrace of the city. And so if we want Christ, we meet him there. See, we have to grow to develop a deeper understanding of suffering. It doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that we long for suffering. It doesn't necessarily mean that we enjoy suffering. But what it gives us is hope in the midst of suffering that God is doing something that only God can do. And therefore we can endure. But we also need a better understanding of the gospel because what the gospel reminds us of is first and foremost what we actually do deserve. And if we think that suffering in this life is bad, we have forgotten what God has rescued us from. Because what we actually deserve is suffering endlessly for all of our days in hell. But the beauty of the gospel is that God has loved us so much that though we rebelled against him, he sent Jesus to die in our place, raised him from the dead, and invites us to find life and forgiveness and freedom. And he rescues us from this present evil age. We're still here, we still endure it, but we know that our souls are saved. So the moment that we start to believe that we don't deserve any bad thing that happens, we have forgotten who we once were. And we have forgotten what our sin deserves. The amazing thing about God is he allows us to endure suffering and endure hardship. And it's no longer for our bad, but it's for our good. Here's the second part of this perfect storm. Not only was the church facing hardship, and we could add, and they thought that they shouldn't. But the church was facing false teaching. And this is where Paul lays on his fiercest judgment. Look at verses 7 through 9, and he says, Not that there is another gospel. 
but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. We talked a little bit about the false teaching that was going on in our introduction last week, but what had happened, just a reminder for you, was that false teachers had come in and they were distorting the gospel. They weren't fully abandoning it, but they were, as we mentioned last week, they were, they were twisting it just enough. They were distorting it enough that it was close enough to the gospel. You remember what we said? It was close enough to the gospel to send them straight to hell. And so the Judaizers had come in, and what the Judaizers were, they were those who believed that the only way to be made right with God, right? They were, they, were, they were confessing Christians, but they said that the only way to really be made right with God is by keeping the law, just like it was in the Old Testament. You have to keep the law. You, that's how you're made right with God. It's not by grace. You can't do nothing. You have to keep the law. And so they've infiltrated this church, and as, this, as the church is suffering, they're right there with this response of, well, well, of course you're struggling. Of course you're disappointed in your faith, because you haven't fulfilled the law. You're not right with God yet. And so they began to teach a distorted message, and Paul was ferocious in his judgment. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on them. The churches in Galatia were looking for hope, but they had turned from grace. And because of that, they were grasping for anything. And lo and behold, these Judaizers have something to offer them, but it's not the gospel, and yet the churches are buying in. And these false teachers are leading the church astray. Again, something that scripture tells us to be on guard with as well. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 2 says, There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways. How scary is that? Many, not a few, many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of the truth will be maligned because of them. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus himself says, Beware of false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Listen to Jude, verses 3 and 4. He says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. The call throughout scripture is a call to be on guard against false prophets because they didn't go away after the first century. And the way that we do this, the way that we guard ourselves against false prophets is by knowing the truth. One of the things that drives me crazy, a pet peeve of mine, I'm going to get on my soapbox, but at least it's a soapbox that pertains to the sermon. 
It drives me crazy when I hear Christians say this. And listen, I think they are well-meaning Christians. I think, I think that they are saved. I, I get kind of what they're trying to say, but it just drives me crazy. It happened to me just two weeks ago. It's when people come in and say, listen, listen, we, we just, we just want to be about loving God and loving people. Too many churches are divided over theological issues, and we just, we just want to stay away from all that stuff. We just care about two things, loving God and loving people. Listen to me, loving God and loving people are the two greatest commandments, but they are not the only commandments. And we, we have to be a people that stands firm on the truth. We have to know the truth. We have to fight for truth. We have to hold on to it with all that we have. We are a church that loves theology for a couple of reasons. One, because what theology is, it's a study of God. And you don't know the deep mysteries of God unless you want to dive into deep theology. And everything that God has allowed us to know about him, we want to know about him. Amen? And so the moment that we say we don't care about theology, we don't care about theological issues, we are saying we don't care about God. We want the shallow God, we want the weak God, we want the God that makes us feel good and doesn't put us in harm's way, but don't you dare give us that rich God. But that's what we want. And yes, we are a church that will divide over theological issues. Why? Because we are guarding the truth of Scripture as best as we interpret it. Guard the truth of scripture because, as the Bible says, a, a, a little bit coming in, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. A little heresy here, a little false teaching here can crush and destroy a church. And so we cling to truth, we fight for truth, but brothers and sisters, we have to know the truth. You will never be able to withstand false prophets and false teachers when they come in your midst if you are not grounding yourself daily in the word of God. We cling to this with all that we have. I love how Charles Spurgeon speaks of holding fast to the truth so that we won't be led astray. And he says this in regards to holding fast. Spurgeon says, cling tightly with both hands. And when they fail, catch hold with your teeth. And if they give way, hang on with your eyelashes. Spurgeon gets the idea. He is speaking of holding fast to the truth with such an unwavering tenacity that no matter what, we won't let it go. Because without the truth, we have nothing. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Listen, and his truth will be hard at times. And his truth will put us in danger at times. And it will put us at odds with this world. But hear me and rejoice, it will save our souls. I love what Peter says when Jesus gets done teaching some really hard truths. And the Bible tells us that after he, he teaches these truths, many of his followers turned away. They just couldn't deal with it. And I can imagine kind of the heartache in Jesus' voice when he looks at his 12 disciples and he says, Will you go away as well? But I love Peter's response. He doesn't deny the fact that it was hard teaching. He doesn't deny the fact that it's scary teaching at times. But he looks at Jesus and he says, where will we go? You have the words to eternal life. It might be hard. It might put us in danger. But we cling to truth with such tenacity because it will save our souls. So again, how do we do this? How do we withstand false teachers? We have to know the word. We must fight to hold fast and to know the word. And I want to be clear with you about something. False teaching is all around us. 
It is all around us. It creeps in from people we wouldn't expect. It creeps in from people we would expect. And the scary thing is even from people we would expect, at times it can sound so good that we just want to believe it. False teaching is all around us. You've heard me rail on it before, but one of the false teachings that drives me absolutely insane is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You want to talk about denying your master. Right? This is this, this idea that people are spouting off that, listen, that what Jesus wants you to have is what some might say your best life now. I don't want my best life now. I want my best life in the life to come. But they argue that, listen, if you just have enough faith, Jesus will make sure that you are healthy. Jesus will make sure that you are wealthy. Jesus will make sure you have everything you need. You will be comfortable. Your bank account will be full. And the, 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 the scary thing is that's telling people that if you don't have those things, you just don't have enough faith. But again, you want to talk about denying your master. Do you remember what Satan offered Jesus when he was tempted? He offered Jesus health, he offered Jesus wealth, and he offered Jesus prosperity. Go back and read the three temptations of Jesus and you will see health, wealth, and prosperity. And the things that Jesus denied as coming straight from the mouths of Satan, so many believers have bought into today. We cannot compromise, we cannot bend. When we hear false truth coming from false teachers, our goal isn't to say, well, I'll just listen to the stuff that sounds close enough, but throw the bad stuff out. We throw it all out. It's not worth it. There are plenty of people who are teaching sound truth. Cling to them. I can assure you that false teaching won't come with neon lights saying that it's false teaching. In many cases, in most cases, it is close enough to the gospel that if we are not well-versed in scripture and we buy into it, it's just close enough to lead us straight to hell. So we must know the word. But the churches in Galatia were buying in. Hook, line, and sinker, they were buying in. And the, those two storms were bad enough on their own. Combined, they were dangerous, but when this third element becomes added in, it becomes catastrophic. It is the perfect storm. Here's the wild card. Here's the third aspect to the storm that makes it the perfect storm. The church was experiencing a real fear of man. Look at verse 10. Paul says, for, I am, now, for am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still, listen, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul knows that this gospel that he believes, this gospel that he has declared to them, puts him at odds with mankind. We know that. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. The church in Galatia believed that if they could, that if they just bought into this teaching that they were hearing, that they would not be at odds with those around them. And in that moment, they cared more about pleasing people than they did about pleasing God. And we call that fear of man. And let me just add that fear of man is deadly. Because as Paul declares, if we are trying to please man, we cannot be a servant of Christ. I mean, just pause there and feel the weight of that statement for a moment. That if we are trying to please man, we cannot be 
a servant of Christ. We definitely can't be a faithful servant. Todd Wilson, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, a resource that I've been using, it's been very helpful as we've been studying through this, he actually lists three reasons why people pleasers or those with a fear of man, why they don't make good servants of Christ. And, and here's the first thing. He notes that people pleasers, they can't be good servants of Christ because they cave under pressure from influential people. They cave under pressure from influential people. In other words, people pleasers will compromise the truth of the gospel when they are around quote unquote important people. And listen, Paul understood this temptation because in Galatians 2, and we'll see it in a couple weeks, he's going to recount the time when he and Barnabas took Titus with them to Jerusalem to get the affirmation from, from the churches there, from the brothers in Jerusalem. And while they were there, there were people who crept in that tried to convince Paul that Titus should be circumcised. In other words, that Titus should keep the law, that he should keep the Jewish law. And those around him were pressuring him and pushing him to tell Titus that if he's going to serve Jesus, he has to keep the law. Right? If he's going to be a Christian, he has to keep the law because we can't get rid of the law. That's what they're saying. And Paul, who is feeling massive pressure from some of the most influential people, refused to budge. And I love what he says in 2.6 because... In that moment when he was tempted to cave, he says this, now from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. He looks at these important people and he says, listen, God doesn't see them as important. No more so than he sees anybody else. And so I refuse to, to cave because if I cave, what does it benefit me? What does it help in other words, Paul says that those the world sees as influential and important, God does not. And he says, I care more about God than I care about them. People pleasers will bend under pressure. They will compromise in the presence of influential people. But here's the second reason that Wilson notes why people pleasers don't make good servants of Christ. And he says, people pleasers ignore harmful hypocrisy. They ignore harmful hypocrisy. People pleasers won't stand for truth when they see people around them dropping the ball, especially those who are in the faith. In other words, we will refuse to fight for holiness and the holiness of others and the holiness of the church. Wilson goes on to note, he says, we need to realize that the failure to confront harmful hypocrisy within the body of Christ is one of the reasons why the church today remains spiritually anemic and weak. Because we will not deal with sin in the lives of brothers and sisters around us. When people are hypocrites, when they say one thing and do another thing, when they deny the truth of the scripture, people pleasers are too scared to confront them with the truth. And again, Paul knows this. Later on in the book of Galatians, he's going to talk about an interaction he had with the apostle Peter where he says that he denied him to his face because Peter stood condemned. Why? Because Peter was being a hypocrite. He claimed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when he was around the Gentiles, he acted like salvation was in grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. And the moment the Jews showed up, he pulled back from the Gentiles and refused to do what the Gentiles did anymore. He's being a hypocrite. And he led many people astray. And Paul looks at him and says, because he stood condemned, I confronted him to his face in front of others. People pleasers won't do that. They're too afraid of what people might think of them if they confront sin in the lives of other people. 
The final reason that Wilson notes that people-pleasers don't make good servants of Christ is because people-pleasers hide from the shame of the cross. I mentioned this to you last week, that when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me daily, he doesn't just see the cross as an instrument of death. He also sees the cross as an instrument of humiliation. And to follow after Jesus means that we have to be willing to be shamed for him and humiliated for him if that means we will make much of him. But people pleasers will hide from shame and humiliation, which means ultimately they will hide from the cross. And at the end of the day, to avoid being people pleasers, to avoid this fear of man, we have to believe the words that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 2, 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what value is he? What value is he? And I just want to be honest with you, and we'll bring this to a close. I understand the temptation to have a real fear of man. I have a temptation often to compromise the truth because I care more about what people think than what God thinks. Do you know how easy it would be if we didn't have to take some of the stances that the Bible calls us to take stances on? Do you know how tired I can get of being called a bigot? being called old-fashioned, being called foolish, out of date. And there are real temptations to compromise, to just put up our hands and say, it's not worth it, we'll just give in because we care more about these people than God. I face that temptation, and I think you probably do too. But where we have to ground ourselves in is the truth that God matters more, that the salvation and the grace he has given us matters more, and faithfulness matters more. So this was their perfect storm. These three things combined to create a catastrophic failure in the life of these believers. And Paul is astonished. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have to be on guard that we don't find ourselves in the exact same storm. Bending slightly here and giving a little bit there and ultimately giving in to apostasy. And to again quote Wilson, he reminds us that apostasy, in other words, means slowly drifting from the seashore of faith on the raft of doubt, driven by the winds of disappointment and carried by the currents of false teaching. We fight against this. But as we close, let me remind you of this. Paul writes all of this and highlights this perfect storm that they are in, not because he wants to condemn them. I shared all of this with you and tried to encourage you and spur you on, not because I wanted to condemn you for your failures, because I wanted to remind you of the same thing that Paul is trying to remind the churches of. He says all of this to remind them that they can get back to grace. That God is still offering grace and he is still offering forgiveness in church. That is the beauty of the gospel. Can't forget this. I'll repeat it throughout this series that the gospel and grace, the grace of God is not just good news for the unbeliever, but it's also good news for the believer. It is good news for those who do not believe in Jesus. If you are here and you do not believe in Jesus, hear me. Your sin and your rebellion separates you from God. Everybody wants to act like God is just this giant teddy bear in the sky that's going to let everybody into heaven, but that's just not what the Bible tells us about him. Our God is a God who is holy and just, and he has to punish sin, and there is nothing we can do to right the wrongs that we have done. One sin is enough to damn us to hell for all of eternity. 
And so left there, we are hopeless and helpless, but God has loved us so much that he sent Jesus, and Jesus lived perfectly like we should have lived. So he didn't deserve death, he didn't deserve punishment, he didn't deserve judgment, and yet God sent him to the cross and Jesus willfully went and took all of God's wrath and anger and punishment on himself so that we wouldn't have to face it. And we put him in, a ground, in, in the ground and God raised him up three days later and God invites us to come and to find forgiveness for sins through faith and repentance by trusting in Jesus and turning from our sins. And God did all of this not because you deserved it. It's grace. It's a gift given to us. And we respond with faith and repentance. But again, grace is good news for those of us who are in Christ because we too at times can stray. Amen? Some of you might be sitting here thinking, I am in the perfect storm right now and I have given in. The beauty of this entire book of Galatians is that Paul is reminding the people that you can come back to grace and find forgiveness and freedom because of what Christ has done. And so if that is you, my call to you today is to come back to grace. You don't have to stay in a place of disappointment because life is tough. You don't have to stay in buying into false truth, false teaching. You don't have to stay in this place of having a fear of man. Come back to grace and be reminded of how amazing our God is.